You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 29 West Tolpahawken Street. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. So I, I want to make the case tonight for why sin matters, why I think it's actually an encouraging topic. So you let me know at the end of all this if I managed that. I think there is such deep joy in the confessing of sin, catching it consciously, this breach that happens in our lives, whether it's with others. I think kids are trying to exit here. So if you're a kid and you've got a teacher at the back, feel free to walk, walk back there. They're waiting for you. So as, as we're going into Lent and, and we're trying to think about how we might draw close to God, I think the topic is helpful too. Let, let's talk about this. It's kind of basic in the scripture that we are moving from a way of seeing that was natural to a way of seeing that is now, at least according to Paul in 2 Corinthians, something supernatural. We've seen Christ in one way. We are entering into something brand new. We're created for this new life. And the Christian life, then, I would contend, is this life that's full of change. And so as I talk about sin tonight, I hope that what you hear ringing through every word that I say is this deeply embedded message that we're a new creation, that we are moving into something more than what we have been. And I think sin is an encouraging topic because it opens me up to this newness again and again and again. God seems to me to be intent on this co-laboring thing. He wants us to be partners with him rather than just having some overwhelming experience of God that somehow moves us in a way that doesn't quite involve the fullness of our persons. God's not interested in that. Instead, he wants this cooperative process. I think it's a little bit like taking splinters out of the toes of boys. I'm an expert at this. I learned early in my life as a mom that I needed to convince whosoever toe I was working on that they needed to stay still, even if it hurt. And that was going to mean a better outcome. And I think this kind of conscious surrender to God so that God can really pull out of us that which might harm us is a pretty good metaphor of, of what the New Testament certainly pictures as this problem that we all experience that the theologians have taught us to call sin. So like with a splinter that must be cut or pushed or plucked out of a child's foot, you really can't do that until the child is yielding, right, still letting you do it. You, you know these two people. One of them is sitting right over here. Uh, and uh, they are out at Rod's folks when they were alive uh, lived on Lake Havasu in Arizona and had a boat. And Ben and Joel are on that boat, and we climbed a lot of places and walked a lot of wood docks and got a lot of splinters. 
you know these people too. One of them sitting back there in the back row in a green T-shirt. He's over here. You might not recognize him. Um, still doing that kind of extracting work on wood docks to this day. Convincing the kid that you will hurt them a little is hard work, but it's kind of absolutely necessary. Some of you may have run into this quote from C.S. Lewis before. I just want you to ponder it with me tonight again. The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it is a far easier thing than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves, to keep our personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time, to be good. We are all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, centered on all the kinds of things we would do to get by in life, and hoping, in spite of this, to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. As he said, a thistle cannot produce figs. If I'm a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sown. So this process of becoming as conscious as we're able of this thing called sin, this part, parts of us that seem to be working at separating us from others, separating us even from ourselves, separating us from God, all of that needs to be plowed up in order for us to even see it, catch it. Something new has to be given. And that's all about what Christ wants to do and why I think sin is encouraging when we can name it and offer it to God. So the history of the Christian church is an unfortunate story of a kind of preoccupation with sin. At least that's one way we could read Christian history. And I don't want us to repeat that tonight. I hope that's not what I'm doing. But I also want to contradict a watered-down version of Christianity that I think is going around pretty thoroughly in our day that is solely about comfort or solely about consolation. There is much consolation for us in the arms of the Lord. But make no mistake, God will not leave you as you are. Change is at the heart of our gospel. It is our good news. There is also desolation in this good news. It's a reckoning with who we are now in our damaged selves and the meeting with the living God, by God's spirit living with us and moving us into new life. There is a real letting go, a real turning around that must happen and happen repeatedly. So I do think sin matters. Without a personal understanding of sin, we miss the freedom Christ offers. Without a personal experience of naming our sin, we miss any chance at the deep joy that forgiveness brings. Without a personal wrestling with sin, we don't stand a chance at being able to forgive others or ourselves. By the way, I'm a therapist, and I know this is not normal therapy language. 
but I think it's vitally important, and I think good therapy goes to the heart of this because we, we work at trying to help people see the patterns in their lives, patterns of thinking, patterns of feeling, patterns of behavior, and it gets, uh, gets at this. But, but let me tell you another story that I hope illuminates this a little bit. When I was a freshman in college, Anton LaVey came to my university campus. This was way back in the 70s. I don't expect too many of you will recognize that name. But he was the head of the Church of Satan. It headquartered in San Francisco, and I was in a university just south of the city. As a relatively new Christian, this scared the bejeebers out of me. But I determined that I should go and listen. My fantasy of what would happen was that this dynamic satanic figure would swoop into the front of the room. And when he appeared on the stage, my first shock was that he was so very ordinary. He basically said, the seven deadly sins are healthy. That was his message. We ought to practice them regularly. His fundamental message was that sin, as we've learned about it in our culture, simply doesn't matter, spiritually speaking. He didn't go into occult stuff, although my research on him told me there were occult practices offered to more advanced members. But for the public, the message was all about how we were told that what was bad was actually good. All the things we'd been told were bad were things we should actually go out and practice. Now that seems to me to be a very old message. You've been misled. Doing what God asks of you is misguided. It's a trick that leaves you not knowing things that you perfectly well should know. That's exactly the message that Genesis captures in the story of the garden. The message is you're not in any danger if you do as you please. Go ahead, eat the fruit. This idea that sin is about a trick or a delusion has really intrigued me ever since I heard Anton LaVey. It rings true in my personal experience of life and my ongoing journey with Jesus. We are too easily tricked into thinking we've got a better idea, a seemingly irresistible idea about how to make our lives better. A colleague of mine, Mark McMinn, a fellow psychologist and a longtime Jesus follower wrote a book titled Why Sin Matters. He talks in the beginning of this book about encounters with the writings of Henry Nouwen and particularly of this book by Henry, The Return of the Prodigal Son. The impact of that painting on Henry and on Mark has fueled my own encounters with the living God. This is the story, the story of the prodigal returning to his father that I would suggest is the heart and soul of Christianity. This is the Rembrandt painting that uh, Nowen um, sat in front of when he was contemplating and beginning to write the book. This is the Murillo version. That one hangs beside my bed at home. I had my own journey away from God and back to God that involved a reckoning with images of God as male and with myself as less than because I was female. But that's a story for another time. Tonight's topic interests me keenly because of my own encounter with Henry Nouwen when he was writing this book. So that's how old I am. <laughs> the Return of the Prodigal. Henry had come to a small group at a conference I was attending, and so I had this unique opportunity to meet one of my author heroes. And then to my surprise, I ended up 
in an extended conversation with him about our deep and mutual sorrow related to the ways we had sinned in our relationships with friends and loved ones. We admitted to each other our tendency to obsess over our relationships and began to talk about how God was meeting us and confronting that very tendency. I've continued to pray about those very subjects ever since. It was life-changing. I think it was life-changing because as Henry and I talked and exchanged stories about our lives, we were uncovering more and more of the deep roots of how sin was really saddening each of us. I came to understand that my error was nothing like what I thought it was. It wasn't about what I understood as the seven deadly sins. It was about how I unconsciously used whatever power I had without even knowing it, <laughs> to try again and again to save myself and or to get one of my intimates to go to the depths of me and save me. God began to make it abundantly clear to me that my sin was deeper and far more corrupt than simply a misuse of my body, although that's always part of it. It was a fundamental and tenacious part of me that was utterly convinced that I had to save myself because I was not worthy of a love that was not earned. The more I wrestled with myself and our unrelenting God who insisted that I accurately see myself, my true damaged self, with its entrenched belief that I was unlovable, it's there that I began to see sin from a very different angle. Sin wasn't just the behaviors listed under the seven traditional categories. It was deeper and far more difficult to pin down. It involved every breath I took in every moment of God seeking me on the horizon to embrace me. And that's still happening today. So tonight I want to try to look at these traditional labels for our sin in the seven deadly sins and go a little deeper to see what grace awaits there. Gluttony. We all know about comfort food. The attempt to feel better by eating is as old as humankind is old. In my field of psychology, we've linked food to oral fixation stemming from early childhood experience and needs. It's always more than just food. We celebrate with food. Food is a gift. But when you use food in a vain attempt to control others' perception of us, or even our perception of ourselves, we become in very dangerous places. Bulimia, anorexia, you know the names. There are lots of uncomfortable facts out there now about how our demand for certain foods damage our planet and our bodies. Needs are real and we all deal with them, but then there are addictions. So what's under? <laughs> the food thing. And now just to pull the conversation a little wider, I think it's also important to point out that it was hunger after all, at least in part, that turned the prodigal son toward home. Maybe we need to listen to our hunger more carefully rather than eat the next helping. Lust is often listed as one of the seven deadly sins. It's often listed first if you come from church circles. 
it's the one we think about at the top, right? Sexual appetite, unchecked sexual desire, a lack of purity. I actually think that, that lust and all of that is a bit of a misnomer. I like the word unchastity better for this kind of category of ways that we destroy ourselves. Um, what's underneath an unchecked sexual desire that explodes into our using other people's bodies for orgasms isn't really just about sensuality. It's about trying to fill a gap, isn't it? To have an experience that feels good and to gain enough power to have it again and again and again. Why would we refrain from a pleasurable experience? I know the key to working with the reality of sin is to admit that our passions are disordered and so we need help. That, that's fundamental. We need a return to a power greater than ourselves, as the folks in the recovery community would tell us. We need a savior. I'd say unchastity is a better word choice. It's the denial of the human inclination to be pure. It's not an avoidance of pleasure. To be chaste is to be morally pure. But of course, <laughs> not completely, we can't be. But we think of it in terms of sexual behavior. To be chaste is to refrain from sexual intercourse outside of marriage. But that seems far too narrow to me. So to say it more broadly, I would say, to be chaste is to be focused on a surrender of our goals for our joy. To believe that God is with us, loving us, making joy possible in our lives, whatever condition we find ourselves in. So to be chaste is to be focused on a surrender of our goals for our joy. Envy, painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another joined with a desire to possess the same advantage. That's a lot of mumbo jumbo. But I think if you're envious, you know what this is. And if you think you're not envious, I would say check again. <laughs> I think envy is very hard for us to see in ourselves. We get wedded to these certain views of ourselves, and then it's hard for us to see what lies outside of that image of ourselves. We select from our environment the cues that confirm our bias. That's just the way the human brain works. So what's under envy? What's at work under our, our sense of, wow, I wish I had that, I wish I could do that, sort of like I wished I could sing when I walked up here, right? Go back to the desire to control our joy, to pursue happiness in the way we learned, even when these very ways simply don't work. Envy is a sort of obsessive quality that get go, gets going in us, and we get fixated on what someone else has, and that becomes sort of the representation of all we long for but don't have. Soon we are chasing that or sulking about that or fantasizing about that or we're no longer living in the present moment, missing all the good that is given to us. We kick our foot away from God's hands as the splinter is just about to be extracted. Anger, 
So you've all heard before, I'm sure, that, that we operate sort of with secondary and then deeper primary emotions, anger almost always shielding something deeper, hurt, pain of some kind, fear. Um, so anger, I think, is not at all a sin. It's the excess of it that gets us in trouble. But I think what we need more is this connection to what's under it, as I'm sort of suggesting for all of these sins. Anger is a signal for change, but anger can also be an emotion, and I think you'll, you'll know this, it's an emotion that we can nurture and protect. It's easier to feel angry than to feel the deeper emotion of fear or loss that makes us feel vulnerable, and thus to feel our utter need for God. Greed. Taking more than is needed. How do you know how much is needed? My mom was a really anxious person. My dad wanted to relieve her worries, particularly her financial worries. And she could not let go of the worry until, it was a, very, a surprise to me when I learned this, but once my dad had a million dollars in the bank, that's a million dollars that you did not touch, right? You, you had more than that to buy the groceries and buy the food and all of that. So this is just an elevated sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a rich person. I, I don't think I'm in the 1%, but I'm somewhere up there. Didn't know that as a kid because my mom was so worried. And so we went without tons of stuff. It was a real head-spinning experience. She needed a million dollars to be untouched before she could begin to relax, begin to live a life. How much is needed? I've been asking myself that question ever since. And I think my mom missed much of what could have been hers in her life if she could have released some of that. Indolence, indifference to the good. Sloth is the word you might have heard before, associated with laziness, sort of a disinclination to exert ourselves. I want to insert here, I work with people who are depressed a lot. I've known my own particular struggle with depression, and this is not what we're talking about. A symptom or a side effect of depression can be the avoidance of activity or what looks like from the outside laziness. However, the inner world of the person who is depressed is not inactive at all. It's quite the opposite. There's too much going on there. Too much negative voices pressing in for isolation, casting blame, casting shame widely. So... That's not what we're talking about when we talk about indolence. Indolence is more about a brokenness in the human spirit that creates an indifference to what is happening again in the here and now, what is given, what is worthy of your consideration. It presses for overlooking gratitude. It focuses on the bad relentlessly. 
By the way, one way to break out of this is to do something. The paradox of the human heart, we all kind of believe these con contradictory things. So for a person who's depressed, one of the things we often recommend is that they do something too, even if it's just take a walk. I would say for a person who is caught in this kind of indifference, this, this rampant sort of resistance to what might be good in the moment, that they too can do something, break through the tendency to isolate, try to be aware of the present moment. Let me buzz through the rest of these. I'm getting long here. Uh, pride. I, I like the idea that what pride really is, is love turned upside down. The capacity to love self to the exclusion of others is not the design of God. It might be the design of capitalism, I'm not sure. In the prodigal, we often see first the behavior, right? The prodigal goes off and sleeps with prostitutes, gets drunk, has the audacity to ask for an early inheritance. Um, but isn't it also, underneath all that, the belief that somehow he was the exception to the rule. He would prosper without guidance from his father, without the boring routine of work, a sort of infantile fantasy that life would just roll out gloriously before him as he enjoyed every pleasure without hesitation or consideration. He'd lost love. It was turned upside down. You know, psychological research is almost comical in its lopsidedness when we look at the way we view ourselves. I want to give you just a few examples of this, how we sort of esteem ourselves. Even if we think poorly of ourselves some of the time, we manage to esteem ourselves more highly than we actually are. And there's just a ton of research on this. You've probably heard that the vast majority of us, when asked, rate ourselves as above average drivers. That's a statistical impossibility, by the way. <laughs> we can't all be above average, right? Average means sort of most of us, but that's not how we rank ourselves. In one study, a million high school students were asked about how they got along with their peers. All of them rated themselves as average or above. 60% believed they were in the top 10%. 25% believed themselves to be in the top 1%. I used to be a college professor. Another study asked college professors to rate the quality of their teaching. 2% reported that they were below average. I'm not sure how they stayed in the field. 10% saw themselves as average. One in 10. 63% as above average, and 25% as exceptional. All of this, of course, is statistically impossible. We think higher of ourselves than we are. But the point is that this reversal, this flipping of, uh, of love so that the capacity to love the self becomes the exclusion of loving others, that's the problem that's deeper. So in closing, let me just say, the inner self still longs for love more than it longs for self-love. 
more than our pursuits of happiness, more than our attempts to be good. There's something else that we long for. We long to return home again and again. I would suggest that it might be a good practice for us to each day open to the hidden surprises that we will only see when we see our sin. That our sin can reveal to us the ways that we can turn and grow and run into the arms of our longing, loving God. Let me leave you with this quote from Lilius Trotter. This has encouraged me over the weeks. I am seeing more and more that we begin to learn what it is to walk by faith when we learn to spread out all that is against us. All our physical weakness, loss of mental power, spiritual inability. We spread that out as sails to the wind and expect them to be vehicles for the power of Christ to rest upon us. It is so simple and self-evident, but so long in the learning. So I commend to you, get to know your sin. It's a great place to turn around and find God waiting to embrace you. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.